Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 10 of Practicing Catholic Medicine. Today, we're talking with Andrea Polito, a registered nurse in pediatric oncology and also a consecrated lay virgin. This is Practicing Catholic Medicine, a podcast dedicated to developing community, encouraging conversation, and discussing top-notch medical care that respects the dignity of all of our patients. I'm your host, Katie. I interview Catholics working in healthcare and invite them to share the challenges, joys, and all the in-betweens of being practicing Catholics, practicing medicine. Pull up a chair and join in the conversation. I'm thrilled to have you here. everyone. As always, let us start in prayer first. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, again, I thank you so much for the gift that it is to be able to practice in um, this wonderful field of medicine and healthcare. I thank you for the patients that we encounter every day and those that we're able to serve. I especially ask that this episode will help us to learn to open our hearts more to your will to help us to be unafraid of your call, to hear you speak, to silence the noise of our daily lives and our daily worries, and to make more room for you to move. I ask this all uh, through your blessed mother as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, hi everyone and welcome. I am so excited to have you here. As I mentioned, today's episode is with Andrea Polito. She has a super interesting background. So not only does she work in childhood cancer as a registered nurse, but she also is a consecrated lay virgin, which I did not know much about, to be honest, before chatting with her. And I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm so excited to share that part of her life with you all. Um, but kind of another facet of this, as I mentioned, she works in childhood cancer. And this is especially close to my heart. And the reason why I wanted to share this episode this month is actually because six years ago, my cousin's daughter, Kayleen, passed away from a long, hard-fought battle with childhood leukemia. And so it seemed really fitting to have someone who was a strong advocate for childhood cancer care on this month. And then I want to also mention that uh my cousin's daughter, they created a foundation for her, which you can look up more under the podcast show notes and on the website if you want to learn more about how you can support that amazing organization as well. In this episode with Andrea, we talk about her passion for the field of childhood cancer care and also just how she stays resilient in this um really emotionally charged field where you have really high highs and just really low lows. And we talk about those experiences that she's been through walking with families through these really trying times. And I just love, love, love her insight. And I think you will too. And she's just very honest about it as well, which I think is, you know, one of the main reasons why I started this podcast was to talk about these things openly and honestly. Uh, we also, as I mentioned, she's a consecrated virgin. So we talk about what that means and how she discerned this call, what her life looks like now. And one of my favorite things is that she was definitely not expecting, you know, when she was a little girl, she was not thinking, oh, this is what my life will be. And so we talk a lot about answering God's call when we don't understand it or when we're questioning it or when we really have no idea how things will work out. And so it was just a really beautiful and honest conversation with her talking about that facet of her life as well. Um, so I really, I just hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to jump right in because there, she has so many good things to say that I'm going to let her do the talking. So thanks everyone. Enjoy. So I am here with Andrea Polito, an inpatient pediatric hematology oncology nurse and also a consecrated lay virgin. Thank you so much, Andrea, for being with us. Yeah, of course. Glad to be here. 
So could you share a little bit about your background, where you're from, kind of what life was like growing up and where you went to school? Yes. Um, so I grew up in San Diego um, and I'm the youngest of five. And there are my whole family, um, my extended family is from there. We grew up near the beach, big Italian family. Um, and it was wonderful. And then I um, went to Steubenville, Ohio, for college, which was really hard and cold. Um, and I went to nursing school there. So I went to a four year program right out of high school, um, to get my bachelor's in nursing there. So, um, yeah, so I haven't been back to live in San Diego since then. So I've been gone now almost 15 years, um, from San Diego, but I went from Steubenville to DC and now here. Do you miss the ocean? Because I'm from Minnesota and I really miss the water and the lakes. <laughs> yeah, I actually get this point, like get to this point sometimes here where I like feel like I want to drive abruptly 15 hours to go home to go to the ocean because I miss it so much. Yeah. And I every time I see it, I kind of get like this weird, overwhelming, like I want to cry because I'm so happy. So <laughs> yeah, it's like a weird, I've never lived in a landlocked state until I've been here. And I love the mountains. Like mm-hmm. I love the mountains, but it's not, it's not the same. It's not the same. No. Yep. There's something about like the vastness of the ocean that I just really miss. Mm-hmm. It feels a little less like contained. I don't know. Yeah. If that makes sense, but. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. So what originally drew into like nursing and medicine in general? Um, well, I originally wanted to be an astronaut and then I found out <laughs> that you had to be a certain height. And, um, for all your listeners out there, I'm like five, one and three quarters and you apparently have to be five, six. So I abandoned that desire like my freshman year of high school, begrudgingly mm-hmm. and really disappointed with life. Yeah. Um, But actually, I went into nursing because um, my sophomore year of high school, I um, met this girl, Megan, who Mm -hmm. is still my closest friend in the world. And um, it was really providential because my freshman year was really hard, had a lot of just hard, normal high school problems, and Mm -hmm. then kind of had a conversion uh, back to the faith before my sophomore year of high school. And she was like my Catholic friend, you know, and she was awesome. She was one of six kids and her middle brother, her only brother of the six, um, was severely handicapped. Mm -hmm. He was very disabled, um, had like a seizure disorder and couldn't speak and, you know, just, but his name was Owen and he was just the most amazing kid in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and I fell in love with him and his family and he required almost constant nursing care so he had someone all day every day went to school with him all those kinds of things and I was just really moved by his life um and so he really was the motivation to become Mm -hmm. a nurse I didn't really want to take care of kids like him because I didn't think I'd be able to do kind of that like in home care Mm -hmm. but I just was very touched by the opportunity to meet people like him um and he actually um died when I was in college in um, my junior year I think of college and so um yeah I really feel like he was the reason and now I you know ask for his intercession a lot he's kind of my motivation for nursing that's really beautiful um what kind of drew you into your current field of like oncology like Mm -hmm. pediatric cancer yeah so I really wanted to work with kids Mm -hmm. and I think part of that was because of Owen um and then I really liked the idea of long-term care, but mm-hmm. I also really like the idea of acute care. Um, I really, I'm not like an adrenaline junkie, like an ICU or an ED nurse, doctor yep. kind of adrenaline junkie, but um, somewhere in the middle. Uh, and so I saw kind of oncology as an opportunity to see the same kids over a long period of time but it's still like nursing wise it's still acute care yep um and so and anyone who's in oncology will tell you like you're either a lifer or you're not and so it's just like by the end of the first year it's like well that was nice and I'm ready to move on or like I can't do anything else and I Mm kind of feel like I can't do anything else so it's been 10 years I've been a nurse in oncology for 10 years 
Um, I was a new grad in DC on oncology unit and still there. So apparently I'm a lifer. (laughs) I love that. Um, what kind of like, you know, you talked about like the attributes of the care itself that Mm -hmm. drew you in. Um, but like, it also is this very, I, I mean, so I guess I was talking to someone who was saying that they were switching fields after a few years because they were just like, so burnt out like there was so Mm -hmm. much emotion in there too Mm -hmm. which there is um so what kind of brings you like the most joy in this field like what keeps you going Mm -hmm. well it's kind of funny because I um I love hospice care Mm -hmm. and palliative care and so and it was kind of going to Steubenville which anyone who knows most girls from Steubenville they're just like obsessed with babies and so everybody (laughs) everyone I feel like in my nursing class was like I can't wait to do labor and delivery and I hated it like I would have done anything to skip that kind of part of clinicals and the (laughs) screaming and the fluids and everything it's just I can't I can't handle it yeah and so the kind of what I feel like gives me the most life is is actually like dealing with death Um, which sounds really morbid and sad, but I think that like, there's something about oncology that what I think what I've learned over the years is that there is this kind of pronounced suffering in children and their families. This it's, which is like twofold. It's, it's existential because these are kids and they're innocent and there's nothing we can't blame anything for this. We can't mm-hmm. blame anything for their disease. We can't even really link into anything chemical or environmental, you know, in general. So there's really no good reason why mm-hmm. these kids should suffer, um, which is also really difficult for their families, obviously. Yeah. And then, um, and and you, we have really good outcomes in kids um, in general compared to adults, but we also mm-hmm. have a lot of outcomes that end in death. Um And I think that there's just something really beautiful about kind of being with families through that um, and then kind of helping them have a good death, which I think is possible. Um, And, and it's, I, I think it's lacking in peds because we are, we're still in denial that kids die because it's so wrong and on a human level, on a spiritual level, on every level, it just Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. It's not the way it should be you know, our grandparents die and then our parents die and kids aren't supposed to die. So for me, it's, um, the things that keep me going are the opportunities to kind of encounter that suffering, to help them through it, the ability to encounter death in a new way and to be able to help them in that. And then just like the resiliency of kids is unbelievable, (laughs) you know? And so it's like you are in our unit and some of these kids are like, in cars, just like turbo speeding around with IV poles and getting chemo. And, you know, it's like, you don't really see that in adults as much. And, um, so it's, it's fun, it's exhausting and it's intense. And I think that I would be lying if I didn't admit that the intensity definitely has gotten to me over the years Mm -hmm. and has kind of changed my outlook on certain things, you know, but overall, it's just really, there's just a lot of grace there, you know? Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. I remember I had a spiritual director who, right before I started PA school, he, I asked him, I was like, how am I going to do this day in and day out? Like knowing that the medical field was going to require so much of myself, like it requires so much of you and, you know, and really anyone in the field. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, well, think of Mother Teresa. He's like, she, go, she went in day in, day out, seeing like the worst the worst things yeah. of, you know, the worst parts of humanity. And every day she kept going out and I was like, I don't know how I would do that. And he's like, it's just that like being rooted in Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also some element of like protecting ourselves from burnout too, right. obviously right. like, you know, f- um, like finding what brings us joy, which mm-hmm. this is like a totally an aside, but, um, I have an attending who this whole week, um, she kept asking us and telling us, be sure that you pick out something from the day that brings you joy because Mm -hmm. this job can get so like overwhelming and stressful. And like you just pretty soon you're just someone who's like doing one task to another and you forget about like the, the moments of joy in the work. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just, she was just really great. 
Um, another question that I have for you is, you know, you mentioned like seeing kids die is not like, it's not natural, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, we, we expect grandparents to die. Not Mm -hmm. saying that it's easy, but like it's the natural progression. And I actually have one of my cousin, my cousin's daughter passed away from childhood leukemia and Mm -hmm. just like so heartbreaking. And it really is like when you're outside of it, you can say like, oh, but they live such a good life, like all Mm -hmm. this stuff. But when it's someone that, you know, Mm Or when it's someone like you who you intimately work with, like Mm -hmm. it just, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know God's plan, but like, how do you, how do you wrestle with that? Because seeing children suffer is not, Mm -hmm. it's like very unnatural. Yeah. Um, there's a couple things. One of the things that I think about, and I honestly cannot remember who said this to me, but there was one, um, there was one patient I, so I work outpatient now. I work in an outpatient clinic, but okay. I worked inpatient for six years before coming to the outpatient setting. Um, and there was one patient who I took care of on inpatient who was just, I took care, we have primary teams. And so you take care that they try and have consistent patients, but this patient was inpatient for like nine months and mm. just had a really hard go and ended up dying. Um, and, um, I remember somebody saying this patient in particular was a teenager and someone said to me, um, one of the things you need to remember is that it is so devastating that he died, but what was he saved from? And he had like this patient in particular actually had a great faith. Um, he was a Christian and, and they were talking about like, what if he would have gone to college and lost his faith? Like, what if his soul would have been lost? Um, what if his family's souls would have been lost mm. because of something that happened, you know? Um, which is consoling to an extent. Um, and then, but also I can go back and say, I think a lot of families have lost their faith because of watching their child die. So I yeah. think it can be twofold. Um, but I think that... Um, w- I think that there is something I, I, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but I think that when I watch a child die, like you said, it's very unnatural, but it's physically unnatural. Like there's something physically very hard about watching anyone die. And I think that it's a really visible example of what sin has done to our world and to our bodies. And there's just something profound about like that manifesting itself through someone so innocent. Um, and there, it's easier for me to deal with the, the child's death than to deal with the families after of like kind of thinking about like this child is unrecognizable when they die. Their bodies change. They look different. They don't look like this sweet kid that you knew um but there's hope in the innocence of they are being resurrected into something even better um and I think about that with like with my friend's brother Owen who could never speak like we talk all the time now about like what does Owen's voice sound like Hmm. and what is it going to be like in heaven when we get to hear him talk you know and I think the same thing about some of these kids of like this cancer they they can't do the things that they deserve to do or love. And and there's something like really hopeful about knowing that they are like in their innocence. And in this beautiful encounter, they, Mm -hmm. they get to resurrect into those perfect bodies and, you know, um, but the families are, um, the families are another story. And, and sometimes the older kids, like, and we take care of young adults and, you know, and so, I think that for me, it's like just, I have to go back to the crucifixion and I have to go back to why he did that. Why did Jesus come and why did he suffer? And he, in his body looked like these kids and, mm. um, and that there has, like, I have to kind of focus on that of like, there is mercy and there is hope in the cross. And that even for these families that, um, that don't necessarily accept like religion or Christ or anyone, maybe they don't even believe. 
there is something about their suffering, whether it was united with him or not, that I have, like, I believe God has to have mercy in that, you know, um, in like a very particular way. Um, so it's, but again, it doesn't get any easier. Like it doesn't, it doesn't get easy to watch this happen, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. but I think, but I think that they're with medicine the way that it is right now. Um, and this is kind of an aside, but like related, I feel like we can keep these kids alive so much longer than we could before. And by the time they die, a lot of them, I feel like we have tortured. Like, I mean, Mm. we have done so much to them and we've done so much to their bodies and they, and there's something, there's a, I think in the family's experience it too, there's like a little bit of a relief of like, there's nothing more, you know, because we, we've kind of made cancer a chronic illness in a sense, because we keep developing all of this stuff and all of these new treatments and they're working, but not working. Mm. And, you know, and so it's just, it's a hard balance of, of by the time it's over, it's like, what, what have we done to these kids, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and sometimes they have a great quality of life, like up until their death and sometimes they don't. And so it's just a, there's a lot of mixed emotions, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know how to describe because I feel like everyone is different and every family Mm -hmm. is different. And so it's just like a, yeah, it's just a hard thing to kind of reconcile in your head. But I think it's such a mystery. Mm -hmm. Um, and every death is a mystery in Christ, you know, in a sense. And so it's sometimes I will rack my brain trying to reconcile like the feelings I'm experiencing around these deaths. And sometimes I'm like, I just can't. Yeah, I can't. There's nothing to say and there's nothing to do to make this make sense. Hmm. That's really powerful. And it's that last point that you brought up about like what we can keep these kids living so much longer, but like, what's the outcome? Like what? Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, I I haven't thought of it that way before and kind of brings in like the the field that is palliative medicine mm-hmm. and hospice and like the really wonderful providers in those fields too, which I feel like is like a very Catholic thing to like help people live yeah. their best lives. And kind of in terms of you speaking, like uh, I really like how you brought up like that, like death and especially seeing children dying is like the manifestation of like sin and Mm -hmm. I once heard it described like the reason why like death is so painful to us is because God didn't design it that way like he never intended it that way and so it's just I I remind myself that like when something is really hard I'm like okay this this isn't how it was originally meant to be this Mm -hmm. is a result of sin and it will be better in heaven right right you know um beyond those things that you chatted about like what how do you think your Catholic faith helps you to be a better provider? You know? Yeah, I think... And I guess not better provider than someone who's not Catholic. Right. But, like, helps you yourself be a great provider. Right, right. Um, I think that in this, I, I... Most of the people that I work with um, have... Would would say that they have... Like, they believe in God or they have some kind of something. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, but... None of them are, most of them, I would say, are not in like a committed faith. Um, and I still don't know how they do it. Like I, I yeah. can't, I can't really understand that. Um, but I think for me, uh, it helps me to bring hope in hopeless situations. Um, and I'm like naturally, and I feel like this job has probably made it worse. I'm naturally a pessimist (laughs) and I really struggle with despair. Like that is kind of the big thing for me. I'm like, I really have to fight to like keep hope in some situations. And so I think that, um, for me, the faith really gives this work purpose because I don't know why else I would do it. You know, it's like, there is something really beautiful and about caring for people, but it's not super glamorous. Um, and, um, and it's not like I'm doing it for the money or (laughs) things like that, you know? So it's like, why, why else do you pour yourself out except for Christ, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that there, a lot of people that I work with are really good nurses and really good doctors. Um, and I'm not totally sure like what they would answer, you know, of why am I, why am I doing this? But I think that, um, but I think the faith really 
allows me to encounter this in a different way of mm-hmm. like, this is not just a job and this is not just, you know, being awesome at oncology or knowing things that other people don't know or being a really good nurse, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, I'm caring for the least of these. And this is really important. And I, and I acknowledge like, it's always really awkward when you tell someone what you do when you work with kids with cancer. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, that's so sad. You know, how do you do that? But it's like someone has to do it. And so obviously if I've done it for a decade, then maybe there's something in it that the Lord has called me to. So I feel like now I need to keep doing it because <laughs> it's like there, every nurse can't do this and every doctor can't do this. And, you know, and so, um, so I feel like it allows me to kind of just encounter people, my coworkers included in like a different way than normal, like as a job, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that, that phrase, like, um, like you did it to, or well, I, what I'm trying to think of oh, the least of these, like mm-hmm. for the least of these, because one of the phrases that I repeat to myself a lot is mother Teresa's like, you did it to me. Like whenever, you know, obviously from the Bible, but also mm-hmm. that was her like tagline, mm-hmm. like, and there was, I remember there was a moment, um, just a few days ago where one of my patients asked for some water and I was about to run and like ask the nurse if she could grab it. And then it was like, in that minute I was like, Oh, I have actually, I do have a second to go get Mm -hmm. her water. And, and that moment of like, Oh, I'm giving water to the thirsty and not in like a self-inflating kind of way, but just like these little ways that we can encounter Christ tasks that seems so menial we we are truly blessed to be able yeah. to serve in that way yeah um and I lo- I just love I'm just going to reiterate this just because I love what you said like why else pour yourself out except for Christ yeah speaking of like medicine as a mission I'd like to kind of chat a little bit about your new-ish vocation yeah. and yeah. um so you are a consecrated virgin part of the it's the order of virgins like consecrated Mm -hmm. lady is that Mm -hmm. correct yeah so the order of virgins when you hear that it's like one of the oldest like vocations in the church and basically Mm -hmm. it was started I mean like in the early 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 Christian time before religious life existed So there were women who wanted to serve the church and wanted to give their entire life for the church, which was not accepted. One, because the world wasn't Christian. And um, two, because women, that wasn't, you you didn't, you had to get married in order to really be anything to Mm -hmm. anyone. Um, so these women would live mostly with their families and kind of just serve the church or, or give, or just live their life in prayer. So when you hear of like all during the like canon, during the Eucharistic prayer and everything, like all of these people, like Agnes, Agatha, Cecilia, Felicity, Perpetua, all these people were part of the order of virgins Mm -hmm. and, and were really martyred for their faith. Um, so it's, um, it's diocesan. So I am a consecrated virgin for the Archdiocese of Denver. Um, and it is, so it's not a part of like, when you hear the order of virgins, it's more global than an actual like community, yeah. if mm-hmm. that makes sense or in an order. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, what does it look like to be like a consecrated virgin to be part of this? Like, yeah, I just love to hear more about what you, what you kind of do in your day to day to have that be incorporated and like just kind of what it means to you and to the church to be this. Yeah. So the biggest, um, commitment of a consecrated virgin is prayer and that is the, and prayer for the sake of the diocese. So that is what a consecrated virgin commits to like on my day of consecration. There are like a couple big things that I committed to, which one was praying the liturgy of the hours. Um, another is being, a like prayerful presence in the, in the church, the local church and for the priests in particular. Um, but on a global level, there's like three elements of a consecrated virgin's life. And that is virginity, uh, maternity, uh, and a bridal. Like those are the three elements. So being, um, committing my chastity and my body to Christ as a, as a perpetual virgin, 
Um, and then committing myself as a bride of Christ, um, and living a spousal union with him and then being a spiritual mother for the church and for anyone I encounter, um, mostly through prayer and then whatever opportunities the Lord kind of provides through that. So, um, it's really rich. And, um, and so on a day-to-day level, honestly, like my life looks pretty similar to most people's, except that my priority is prayer. Um, and then mass whenever I can get there, which to be quite honest is not very often, um, because of work. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's, but like, it's more of a, um, a spiritual disposition, Mm -hmm. um, than, and like a more of a like concrete thing. So my day starts with prayer. Always. I do a holy hour every morning before work. Um, and then praying the liturgy of the hours throughout the day. Um, and then kind of, but the rest of it is more of what opportunities is Christ giving me, um, that I am exclusively his. And so I'm not split. Like I, I'm not, I don't have to think about a husband or children or anything like that. So it just gives me a, like a freedom to kind of be more docile to him in what he wants me to do. Um, so it's, yeah. So I feel like it's, it's a hard thing to explain to people because it's not super concrete of Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. I do this at nine and this at 10 and this at 12. And you know, it's, my life's kind of a disaster most of the time, just like totally chaotic, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's every, every day is different. Mm -hmm. Um, but the biggest thing is, it starts and ends in prayer and that my everything I do and every decision I make has to be centered on the mission of how can I better support the church in prayer. Um, and then this like kind of the, what's born out of that is being a witness to the world of being a witness to the people that I encounter that I should be a witness with my life, not necessarily with my words. Um, and so, um, that kind of, pours out of it, I guess, of if I can be living a life of constant prayer, then I am more docile in the moments, you know, of hopefully, I mean, I'm pretty much a failure throughout the day always, but it's, we all are, you know? So, um, yeah. So that's kind of the, the basics, I guess. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I, I love how you say, how can I better, like it frees you up to be like, how can I better support the church? Mm-hmm. Because like as a wife, I mean, I am thinking that, but then it's like a very similar like vein of that because my day is also like, how can I better support my husband? Right. And so it's like very similar, right. like chains of thought there, like mm-hmm. in terms of service. So right. I really, I really like the explanation. Um, what inspired you to become a consecrated virgin? And was this something that you expected? Like if you saw yourself like 10 years ago, would you be like, yes, I'm going to do this? No, 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 no. Can you kind of walk (laughs) us through that discernment process? Yeah. It was like the shock of a lifetime. (laughs) Literally. Um, I started discerning this in 2012. Um, and I was consecrated on July 22nd, 2017. So it it was about five and a half years of discernment. Um, and actually what motivated me to end up doing this, um, in general to be a lay consecrated person was my job. Um, so when I started discerning this, it was kind of a moment, um, that I attribute to, uh, the intercession and the life of St. Mary Magdalene. She's Mm. become my patron. Um, but it was really kind of witnessing her at the cross, um, during an Easter triduum in 2012 that really called me to think about something, which I thought I was going to be a nun because that's all I knew. Um, so, which I'd never thought in a million years, everyone at Steubenville discerns, discerns air quotes. Um, but, and thinks like, they're going to be married to their like freshman year boyfriend. Right. Yeah. It's like one or the other, you yeah. know, you're kind of like, Oh, I'm discerning. So I'm going to stay single. I discerned for like 35 seconds on a bench. And then I was like, <laughs> wow, that those guys are really good looking. My discernment's over, you know? So it was never really, I was never one of those people who like had an encounter when I was five or 10 or whatever yeah. that God was calling me to be a nun. Never. I thought I was going to get married and have a lot of kids like all my siblings, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, when I started discerning this, I 
only knew about religious life. And so I was kind of, and I didn't have a director or anything at the time. I was kind of like talking to our, my parish priest and trying to kind of just pray into this a little bit. Cause it was quite a shock. And, um, and I kept kind of coming back to, um, at that point I was working on inpatient. I was having these conversations like that really didn't have anything to do with the faith, except that it was obvious that my priority was the faith. So even just like trying to trade shifts so that I could go to mass, because when you work weekends, you work 12 hour shifts on Saturday and Sunday, there's like no masses Mm -hmm. except Boulder at 9 PM, which you're guaranteed to fall asleep. And you know, so it's just a hard, like I was trying to trade shifts and talking about things I was doing and I was volunteering at, in a youth group and things like this. So, um, and people, it would lead to questions, you know, and, um, and I really could relate to all these people. I hung out with all these people outside of work. They were my first friends mm-hmm. in Denver cause I didn't really know anyone when I came here. So other, like there's people that I work with who were, I still hang out with who were my first friends here. So there was like this normalcy to our life, you know, and I was yeah. like a normal person to them. But then I also had this kind of thing, you know, on the side yeah. of being Catholic and keeping that a priority. So when I was thinking about leaving, the, the thought that keep, kept coming to my head was if I leave, um, no one else is going to be here to have these conversations. And I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking that in like a vain way of like only I could do it. It was more so just that it's not common, you know, and there's not a lot of Catholics. Like we're definitely the minority. And so um, – what is that going to do, you know? And then I was, then it was this battle of like, okay, just get over yourself. Like you just can't leave the world. And that's what you're called to. You're called to leave the world. But it kept kind of coming up and coming up of like, I really don't think I'm called to leave, you know? And so I, um, kind of in a moment of desperation went to this priest who I knew, but didn't know well. Um, and I was like really looking for someone to be like, get over yourself and go be a nun. And he is the one who introduced me to the idea of being consecrated in the lay state in Hmm. general, not consecrated virginity, but just consecrated in the lay state. So we started meeting and studying and all of these things for, and it really became clear that this was a good option. Like, this is really what I felt like everything about being consecrated in the lay state was like everything I wanted. It was kind of what I was convicted of. And, and the more we talked, the more I prayed, the more we met, the more I kind of pursued it, the more clear it became. So, um, so that kind of happened for years. We did this. Um, and then I went on a, um, 30 day Ignatian retreat. And during that time, it was clear, like during what you call the election, what St. Ignatius calls the election of like kind of making a decision in the midst of these 30 days of prayer and silence, um, that I was really called to be like be, um, consecrated in the sense that, um, I needed to do like actually make an act in some way to be consecrated. And the reason I was so convicted of that is because I felt like our world just isn't committed to anything. Marriage has dissolved. The family has dissolved. And so this, I, like, I really felt convicted that being consecrated, actually consecrated in some way would be, um, a, a big witness to the, like the idea that commitment is, is good and holy and needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So then I basically went to the church I literally emailed Archbishop Aquila's secretary, who was a friend of mine at the time, Father Scott Bailey, and said, this is what I feel really convicted of. This is what I've been studying for the last three and a half years. What do I do? And he said, I think you should pursue consecrated virginity. Hmm. So that kind of went, at that point is when I started going through like the diocese actually as a process to actually go through it, Um, which is studying and meeting and meeting with archbishop and doing a lot of things like almost like a seminary, um, application. It's similar where you kind of have to have letters of recommendation and they make sure you're not crazy and you know, all of these things and then you get approved. And so that's kind of what I, so the whole, that whole process was like five and a half years, um, of discernment, which I mean, make made sense to me because if you were joining a religious order, it's like seven years before you take final vows and, for consecrated virginity, it's like one and done. It's not temporary. It's like you're consecrated when you're consecrated, you know, for your life. You're committing this for your life. So it, they really want to make sure you're obviously know what you're doing. Yeah. Um. So that is kind of the 
process I went through to become consecrated. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Were you ever like resistant to this idea? Totally. (laughs) Very. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like a, I, I'm like a extroverted emotional girl. So I'm like, this sounds horrible, (laughs) you know, of like kind of living a life by myself potentially. Um, and cause I mean, consecrated virgins can live in community, but that opportunity hasn't arisen, arrived, arised, risen. (laughs) I don't know, whatever English word you use. Um, so it was, and it was really hard. It was kind of hard to surrender control and expectations. And, you know, you, I've been, we've been studying all of these amazing women and, you know, different saints and canonized and not canonized who've kind of lived a life similar and, And I'm just like, I'm not like these people, you know? Mm -hmm. And so just surrendering my expectations for myself, surrendering expectations of others of, you know, how is this going to look? And this, no one understands this. Am I going to be able to explain this well enough for people to think that I'm not crazy? Um, And so there were definitely moments of resistance, but Something that my spiritual director for a long time, the one thing that he always came back to was, um, you, you can always leave like during Mm -hmm. this discernment process. He's like, you are not, no one is forcing you to do this and you have to choose this in freedom. So there were moments where I was like, okay, I'm walking away, you know, of just Mm -hmm. kind of, this is not, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't know if I'm holy enough, which I'm neither of those things, which is what, five years of discernment has was helped me realize of like, I can't live this. I can't, it's impossible. It's only through grace and it's only through Christ. And so I think, um, yeah, kicking and screaming, I think would be a good, like kicking and screaming with conviction. Cause I never <laughs> yeah. felt like I could walk yeah. away. I felt like it was too clear that, but I, but I always felt like I could just walk away in the sense that I'm like, I don't, I, I could ignore this forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I could say, forget that, you know, but in, in the depths, it was like, if I did, I would be abandoning the best thing that Christ is inviting me into in the way that I can be a saint, you know, Mm -hmm. and be Mm -hmm. holy. So yeah, it was hard. Yeah. Really hard. A lot of tears, a lot, a lot, a lot of tears. (laughs) I could imagine too, especially for a call that is so unique. Like, like when Catholics are like, well, actually I feel called to be a nun, you know, it's it's hard but it's like well I know what that is yeah I know what that is Mm -hmm. and your family kind of has an idea of Mm -hmm. what that is right (laughs) but this is different right did your family like how did they respond when you expressed this yeah so um my family is wonderful and there was definitely like I would say concerned support (laughs) I will like uh, I I don't know how else to say it of like none they were never like this is terrible. We're going to disown you. You, I can't believe you would want to do this. Um, I think that it was more so what most people think of like, what, what is lay consecrated life? Are you sure you want to do that? Um, and then it was kind of like, I think it was a fitting response from both my mom and my dad, um, of my dad's concern was not, was more practical. Um, and my parents are very, very holy people and very prayerful people. So it was like, my dad was thinking like, okay, so you're going to do this and you're going to be in Denver where you don't have any family. Like what if your car breaks down and what if you need money and what if the, you know, a very dad thing, you know, and he's very handy. And so he's very, he wants me to be taken care of. And I think he was anticipating, um, handing me off to another capable person like himself who could take care of me. Um, and I think he knows that I'm strong, but I think he also knows I'm kind of a spaz. So it's just like moments of like, really? Like, what are you going to do in these situations or what, you know? And I think for my mom, it was more so like, she was a great mom and, and she didn't have a career, like her career was raising us. And so there was like, I think this kind of deep connection that she really felt that she gained with my sisters. There's two, five of us three girls and two boys and they're all older. I'm the youngest. And so she, I think there was this deeper connection she had with my sisters when they had kids because Mm -hmm. there was something that she could give in a new way. And I think she wanted that for me. Mm -hmm. And so there was like a worry, um, I think twofold of like, 
are you going to regret not having kids? And then are we going to be able to be as close because you're not yeah. having kids? And so I, I don't know if she, she never really verbalized that, but this is my interpretation of, of what she felt. So I think there was definitely hesitation. I think that they're still, I think they still worry about me. I think they worry a lot about me being lonely. Um, I think that's their biggest concern of, and that's, you know, my dad asks a lot, like, are, so are there other people you can live with or have, you know, are there other people that want to do this? And, um, and so I think that that is still a hard thing for them. Um, but just, I think my sisters are not Catholic and, but they're very committed Christians and their thing, I think at one point my sister said, I don't really understand this. I don't like, and it was never like a, in, in a negative way, just Mm -hmm. kind of an objective, like I don't get it. Um, but I can see that you're more yourself than you ever have been. Mm -hmm. So this obviously must be good. Um, so, so I think from my siblings, it's just been support, a lot of questions, obviously a lot of explanations and, um, yeah. Um, how do you, I guess my, another follow-up question, um, is what advice do you have for anyone discerning a vocation? Mm -hmm. Particularly, I think because like most people think like, it's just, I think like a natural path for most people Mm -hmm. to think I will get married. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And so to like feel a tug to be a nun or to be a sister, like consecrated virgin, it's like Mm -hmm. very different than Mm -hmm. probably what people expected their lives to look like. Yeah. So what advice do you have for anyone discerning a vocation like that? Yeah. Um, I think one of my biggest pieces of advice is not to do it alone. Mm -hmm. Um, is that in our faith, we are built like Christ intended us for community, um, in some way or another, you know? And so to get help in doing that, talking to people, getting a spiritual director, that kind of thing. I think, um, I think, the other thing that I would say is to take the pressure off of yourself to know, um, of, of like that this, this is done in freedom, that the mm-hmm. Lord doesn't call us to things that we're not able to, to live. And that I think that we kind of like, there's like, a, I think there's people who are like, okay, I feel this tug. So I need to like change everything <laughs> in my life to accommodate this. So whether that means, um, I am going to go on a dating fast or I'm going to go and, you know, move here, or I'm going to quit my job and do this. I think what I've been most convicted of in this, in life is that, um, the Lord takes the ordinary and transforms it into something supernatural. And so I think that like he can really do something in the ordinary. And so, especially in our world today, I think that we have to be more attentive to him in the ordinary. And I think Mm -hmm. that's like part of the biggest part of my life is like, how can I see the, how can I see Christ in the ordinary things? And I think that is a huge part of discernment of, okay, I'm just going to live my life and I'm going to make Jesus the priority Mm -hmm. and whatever that looks like for me in terms of prayer and, and commitments. Um, and I'm going to see what he does with that. And I think that that was, so big for me because out of the ordinary, he called me to this life. Um, and I think that my friend, one of my best friends is now, um, a sister in Minnesota actually with the handmaids of the heart of Jesus. Um, I love them. Yeah. What's her new sister Annunciata is her name. It's Becca Messel, um, which she worked at the Samaritan house for a long time. And, Hmm. um, and for her, living in the ordinary called her to the convent because it was this kind of movement for her heart of this is beautiful and I actually really desire this, but the Lord is really calling me out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that he really can, he really can do that. And I don't, I think that there is this pressure. Part of it, I think is because of the secularity of the world of we need to be different. We need to do things differently. We need to be extreme. We need to, you know, we need to go out and find Jesus like intentionally when really he is everywhere and (laughs) he's really moving everywhere and he's moving in everything. And so I really think everyone just needs to chill out. And that would be my biggest advice for discernment is just like, we just have to 
chill out and live our life and see what God does. And if we put him first and we put him, we give him everything, you know, Mm -hmm. in whatever way we can in our current state, he's going to, he's going to do a lot with that. Whether that means he's going to just kind of deepen the desire to be Mm -hmm. exclusively his in the sense of, of consecration or convent or whatever, or he's, he's going to like put someone in our path that is, well, maybe I'm supposed to date this guy, you know, or this woman or whatever. And so I think that it's just a, I think we, we just need to look for Christ. We don't need to look for something crazy to kind of move us in one direction or another. So I guess that would be, that's a long piece of advice, but no, I love that. I, I had like two solid years of discernment. Um, it was actually during my years as a focused missionary where I was like mm-hmm. very seriously discerning. And I thought God was definitely calling me to be a sister. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you bring up the handmaids because I went on a retreat with them and I was, or not a retreat, but like a come and see. Yeah. And I was like crippled by anxiety. Like I mm-hmm. thought I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is what I have to do. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to like two um, like very important points. One is that you mentioned like choose this in freedom. Mm-hmm. And so that's always the biggest thing. Like God, like there, there's a difference I think in the, my thought process process in that and your thought process where you were like, well, anything less than doing being a consecrated virgin would just be like not as fulfilling or mm-hmm. not as joyful. Yeah. Like it's not like you were like, you had to do this, right. but you just saw like, but this is like the perfect thing for me. Right, right. And then the second thing that it makes me think of is during this like moment of peer anxiety, I just like, (laughs) I just dropped my microphone. I just like, I I remember like flipping open my Bible to first John and it said, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out Mm -hmm. all fear. Yeah. And in like in that moment, I was like, oh, well, if God is love and my vocation is to love and whatever way that I can love best, then all this fear and mm-hmm. like anxiety yeah. that I have is not of God. Right. Kind of like starting to wrap things up here. Mm-hmm. How do you balance faith and career and your vocation along with like your friends and family mm-hmm. and like this idea of like being open to service mm-hmm. and being there for Christ? Yeah, it's um, it's sometimes really challenging and I feel like I, I'm sure like... I, everyone talks about how like your first year of marriage is really hard and you're learning how to live with another person and you're learning who you are. The same thing happened with consecrated life. Mm. It's just like a whole new, like, I'm trying to figure this out, you know? Um, and there's aspects, there's not something about lay consecrated life. That's really beautiful, but also makes it harder is that there's not like as solid rules and canon law as there are for things like religious life, you know? So it's like, you're kind of, you have this, um, this skeleton of what your life is called to look like. And then you kind of have to figure it out, um, of how to live it. So it's hard. Um, I think for me, it's all motivated by what is my mission and what is going to give me the most freedom to continue to live that. And so, and that is in every aspect. So, um, so in terms of career, it's like, I have like the most plush schedule in the history of the world because I work in an outpatient clinic. And so I have no, no nights, no weekends, no holidays. We're closed for all of those. And I work four days a week. So it's like, what, what, if I leave that job for something different, is that different going to give me the ability to, um, to do a holy hour every day to make sure that I, there's no question whether I'll get to mass on Sundays and hopefully more days than just Sunday. Um, it, does it give me the freedom to spend like evenings with other people? Does it give me the freedom to do things like this? Does it give me mm-hmm. freedom to talk to other women around the world who were discerning consecrated life. Um, so kind of like with that in the back of my mind, always of like, there's, you know, there's like management positions open and they're like, well, would you ever apply? And I'm like, I don't think I would not because I don't necessarily think that management is important, but I would be working like 20 hours more a week than I am right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like that would, be a hindrance to being able to live a faithful life with Christ. And that's for me. And that's not for everyone, but I am like someone who needs 
sleep to not be like an emotional wreck and be able to focus. And so I need to be conscious of that, even Mm -hmm. though it feels like a weakness, you know, Mm -hmm. I need to be conscious of that. That's the reality of my life, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and it's hard. Like I kind of just try and keep things in check of like, I didn't take a vow of poverty in the same sense as someone in a convent, but I did commit my life to, to live spiritual poverty with Christ, which requires, um, a, a real discernment in material goods, you know? So am I, am I like trying to medicate my life with shopping, which I mean, we can all be tempted to, you know? Mm -hmm. So just like little things of like, what do I possess? Like, what do I own? Um, what am I buying? Like, am I living simplicity as much as I can while still needing to own things and support myself? Mm -hmm. Um, and then in the, I mean, and just kind of like questioning, like I want, there was a consecrated virgin who I talked to in Minnesota actually before all of this. And she was just kind of like, think about, um, like you are married and whenever you want to buy something or do something or plan something, you have to consult your husband because Mm -hmm. he's your spouse and you share everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's the same for me. And so she was even saying like, um, she was like, I don't even think to talk about Jesus about the little and talk to Jesus about the little anxieties of like, I'm really stressed because I need to get to this place at this time. And I, you know, am worried I'm going to be late or I'm worried I'm going to disappoint this person or I'm worried I'm not going to make this phone call. And she Mm -hmm. was like, I just had to like learn how to treat Jesus as my spouse, which if he truly was my spouse living in my apartment with me, Mm -hmm. I would be sharing everything with him. I would be, you know, whether that's like, like the little anxieties, the big anxieties, the things I want to purchase, the things I want to do, the things I want to accomplish. Um, like, am I, am I, communicating those things to him and am I listening to his response Mm -hmm. um so it's a work in progress um and it's obviously a lot easier to ignore a man who's not like physically in front of me than like if he was you know and so that's always a temptation of like well I could pray about this but I actually really want to do this so I'm just (laughs) gonna go ahead and do it and then see what happens (laughs) Um, yeah. So it's kind of a, a just like a work in deepening in prayer and deepening in discernment with just everything, you know, of um, of everything I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I, I like that you say it's easier to ignore like a human person, not saying Jesus is a human person, right. but like it's easier to ignore Jesus than it is to ignore someone who's standing right in front of right. you. And I remember talking to just like a funny aside. I remember talking to a priest in confession about how I was like, wow, like my prayer life has really like just, you know, like really dissipated. And I, and he's like, well, think about it. He's like, you wouldn't forget to eat. Like you plan mm-hmm. that out. Like, like no matter what your day looked like, you would make sure that you eat. Like, why don't you make sure you pray? And I was like, that's a good point. But then he also made the point. He's like, but at the same time, he's like eating, like we need that to like physically live. Mm -hmm. And so it's easier for us to remember that than Mm -hmm. to remember the, you know, like the spiritual side of Mm -hmm. things. So it's like this, like, I think we just need to be even more gentle on ourselves, not saying to like, like be like oh it's fine that you don't pray but to be like just to acknowledge that like being human Mm -hmm. and having these weaknesses is a challenge Mm -hmm. and we're working through that every day yeah and I think that something that's really helped me um is to think about like as in on like a very human level something is going like something we grow in things because of a routine um Mm -hmm. and I think about like I was talking to a, a friend of mine um, about marriage and she's a newlywed and she was kind of talking about how it's taken her like months to realize that she has to actually call her husband in certain situations. Like I can't just go out after work without talking to him about it or like letting right. him know that I'm not going to be there. And so she's like, but it's getting better because it's been six months and I, we keep fighting about it and this routine of like, okay, I need to just like check in, check in, check in. Um, and the same thing is true about spiritual things. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, I, um, like I only notice that I, when I don't pray because I've committed to a daily holy hour for the last five years, but it wasn't like that before. So before it was like, oh, well, it's like every now and again, great. I got a few holy hours in this Mm -hmm. week. But then when you kind of get in the routine of like, 
praying every day, then you notice, you notice it when that when that time isn't there or when your spouse is gone, you know, like mm-hmm. these things it's, so it's just a, I think that has helped me of like, okay, I just need to get in the routine. I need to get in the, like the routine needed to change, not like that much when I became consecrated, but just the, the mindset even has to be a routine of like mm-hmm. getting used to thinking a certain way and kind of needing to go back to that consciously until it becomes more subconscious. If that, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that makes complete sense. And just like, yeah, like, I mean, even with like starting my new job, it was like, okay, this, a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. How will my routine change? Mm-hmm. Like, where will I build in prayer? And for, I will admit for like the first few weeks in my job, it was like, I didn't really, like I was doing a whole, everything totally different. So mm-hmm. it felt very off kilter and right. I wasn't really praying. Right. And it felt weird. But then at the same time, I was just like trying to get by. Right. But then once you like, I was like, okay, what's missing? It's prayer and mm-hmm. like fitting that in. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I pray from like 4.30 to 4.40, 4, like 35 a.m. sometimes. Like it, <laughs> it's not much, but it's like, right. you know. Right. And I, I think that we like the saints teach us is like we have to be able to pray like in our vocations yes. and in our jobs. And we can do that, you know, in different ways. And we just have to we have to kind of take off the expectation of ourselves that like it has to look this way. Yeah. And it, and it, and especially in the medical field, especially for physicians, I mean, I don't even know like how doctors do it. I don't, I, because it's just such a rigorous life, you know, Mm -hmm. and no matter what kind of position you're in or where you work, it just, it's, it's hard. And so we have to kind of be patient, I think with ourselves of, okay, like, the only person setting an expectation is me. Yeah. So, and I'm disappointing my expectations, but, and then I'm condemning myself and then I'm like, Oh, I'm the worst Catholic ever. I'm the worst everything. And it's like, my spiritual director has been like really hammering home with me over the last year of like, okay, you overslept because you're exhausted and you missed your holy hour. So what does that mean? That means you have a 20 minute drive in the morning. That means you have 10 minutes like hiding in the locker room at lunch, you know, like, and you have to, that's okay. Like the only person who's disappointed with you for doing that is you. And so you just need to get over yourself and kind of (laughs) let that expectation go, which is hard. Oh, totally. It's really hard, but it's really important. And it's also all about like finding those little moments to pray. Like for me, like it's at work right before I enter a patient's room, I say like, I like, you know, that phrase, like check your own pulse before Mm -hmm. you check the patient. Like for me, it's like, I pause, I ask Jesus to help me be whoever he needs me to be in Mm -hmm. this moment to that patient. Mm -hmm. And it's like, then you're making your whole day a prayer. I mean, it's important to have that one-on-one conversation with him, but I think we can delude ourselves into thinking that the only way that we can be holy is just like in adoration all the time. Right. Right. Which isn't realistic. Right. You know, depending on your call, like Mm -hmm. if you're called to be in the world, then God is calling you to be a witness in the world. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, well, my last two questions are always, what book are you reading right now? I actually just finished a book this morning. It was super weird. (laughs) Um, it, it, but really good. It's called Lau, Laurus. Um, and it was a book that my friend that was a priest gave to me. Um, and it's like this Russian novel. (laughs) I don't know. It's pretty, pretty weird, but kind of interesting. If you're like, it's about, um, the holy fools in like medieval Russia. If you're into that stuff, I would definitely read it. (laughs) Um, but I also just finished, um, the power and the glory by Graham Greene for a book club that I'm in, um, which was wonderful if you haven't read that it's amazing um it's about a priest who um kind of like betrays his priesthood during um the uh like all the really bad persecutions in mexico Mm, yeah um and um it's really good so those are the two books and i'm now i have to start the ball and the cross by gk chesterton oh that's the next one i know that's the next one for my book club that i have to read so i'm gonna start that that's fantastic yeah that should be good (laughs) and then my last question how has jesus been loving you lately um 
I think that he, I just returned from a pilgrimage to the shrine of St. Mary Magdalene in Southern France. Amazing. Um, if anyone ever has an opportunity to go there, it's basically the most incredible place (laughs) I've ever been. Um, and he really has been loving me through her. Hmm. Um, I like, am one of those people who really loves the saints because I know they're a really good example. Um, but I would say that it's always been a challenge for me to feel like the saints are living, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so my encounter with her at her shrine was probably the first time in my life that I like had like a real living experience of being like Mary Magdalene is actually like loves me and is praying for me. And it was like so amazing. (laughs) Um, so I think, yeah, I can't even talk about it without getting teary eyed. (laughs) Um, just really trying to encounter the saints in real life. And I think that he really has loved me through her, which has been amazing. So (laughs) I love that. It's like, once you find a few saints that you can, that you really feel close to, it's like, it changes your life. I mean, I feel like St. Philomena has just been like mm-hmm. right by my side for so long. Yeah. Just, yeah. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I hope that you have a wonderful day and a thank great you. career. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much, Andrea, for coming on to be on this podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation and I think it will move a lot of hearts. And thank you for listening. As always, everything we referenced will be in the show notes and you can find those, um, on the podcast platform that you're looking at or on the website as well. And don't forget that you can follow Practicing Catholic Medicine on Instagram, Facebook,